This podcast is for mature audiences 18 and over and for entertainment purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider before pursuing any of our topics discussed. You're listening to Eat, Play, Sex with Dr. Cat, the place to get play, sex, and nutrition talk straight to your ears. Hey, sexy kittens, and welcome to another solo episode with yours truly, Dr. Cat. Have you ever started dating someone only to realize that you're repeating a pattern of dating the same type of narcissistic dumbass that you did before? No, of course not. (laughs) We tell ourselves that we're never going to date somebody like that ever again, and then we do it. Only they're in a different package and a smoking hot babe of a different package, but still. All the same, nonetheless. Why the fuck do we do this to ourselves? Are we masochists of our own design, leading ourselves through pain because there's an internal unconscious pleasure out of it? Well, yes, I actually do believe so. (laughs) Dating is so complex especially when we think about all the contributing factors that formulate how we see relationships, how we're able to express our needs, how we're able to empathize with one another, and how we protect ourselves when we feel hurt or when we feel threatened. From our first person perspective, we may not be so clear as to how we're showing up or what our contribution is to the outcome of every romantic pursuit. Unfortunately, We can learn by looking back, not only at our adult relationship patterns, but at the primary relationships that have had an influence on formulating the foundation from which we grew. And these are our parental or our primary caregiving situations. So today we're going to dive into better understanding our relationship patterns as they pertain to the attachment theory and how we can best untangle ourselves from this mess so we can better move forward making conscious decisions in healthy relationships. Ah, thank the Lord. (laughs) So if you've been with me for a while, then you've heard me talk about attachment theory because I'm pretty sure that I've laced it in the majority of my episodes and I'm absolutely obsessed with it and how it describes our default strategies to getting our needs met. And we talked about it in episode 50 with George Haas, who gave us this beautiful in-depth look of how it impacts our relationships and how he helps people to recondition themselves, which is pretty fucking badass if you ask me. Check it out for sure. In this episode, let's take this shit apart. Let's really dive into the depths of this theory so that you can better understand it. One of my biggest pet peeves is how much this term is used in our pop psychology. And it's perpetuating this shame cycle, you know, where we're pointing our fingers at people and we're saying, oh, because you're avoidant, 
that means I need to avoid dating you because you're going to just going to fuck up my life and you, you hate intimacy or you're afraid of intimacy. And that isn't necessarily the case at all. I think that understanding this theory can really free us to begin to create the relationships that are the right fit for us. All of us have complicated relationship patterns. All of us can struggle with intimacy, letting somebody in, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not fit to date. Or it's not our place to point a finger and say, hey, because you have a codependent relationship, that's an unhealthy form of relationship. I think that's bullshit because some of these styles of relationships are what's most stable for these other people. And who are we to project onto somebody else that their relationship style is a less evolved version while ours is the truth and the right one? At the same time, it doesn't do us any good to be labeling ourselves as hard to love or worthless or bad at love like the Halsey song. So pull up a chair, get out your journal and your coffee, And let's get in. Attachment theory is a theory of social development that starts out by taking a look at the relationship between the child and a primary caregiver in the first 18 months of our lives. Now, it's in these first 18 months that our system is developed in accordance to the environment as to whether or not there are resources available for us to get our human needs met, our basic human needs met, that I like to categorize in these six A's, attention, appreciation, affection, allowing, acceptance, and availability. As babies, we cry, we reach out, we throw tantrums, we coo, we smile, we laugh, All of these are strategies for being able to get our needs met because we don't have full agency. We have to rely on our primary caregivers to ensure our safety and to get those needs met. So when our internal system perceives that these aren't going to be met on a consistent basis, and for whatever the reason, you know, whether the parent just wasn't able to be there for us, Our brain and our nervous system develops in a way that would be best suited for survival of us moving forward. So for instance, maybe we experienced a a parent who, due to depression, wasn't able to fully be present with us or wasn't able to correctly gauge what it is that we needed or wasn't available for the level of affection that we needed for soothing. And as a result, we formulated a nervous system that was slower to activate in response to the stress and quicker to disengage again once it was activated. So in other words, we develop the ability to be less connected to our feelings and more apt to taking care of of things ourselves so we're not bothering the other person or so that we don't create a situation that might push them away even further. Perhaps we've also formed an unconscious internal narrative that we can't rely on other people or that we can't trust that they'll show up if we ask or that we have to take care of ourselves or that we are a burden or that we're weak if we ask for help. 
forward, we march on to life, viewing the world through this lens and the nervous system designed for a world who cannot meet our human needs. Sound familiar? <laughs> Maybe for you it's different. Early attachment theorists determine these four main categories of attachment that encapsulate the strategies that we refer to in order to get our basic needs met when we perceive that there is fear or fear a threat. So these four categories are determined by levels of experience ranging from avoidance to anxiety and exist on a spectrum that in its most detailed and accurate expression can actually be organized into 19 different subcategories. But you probably don't hear about that because you probably just hear about the most common four adult versions, secure, preoccupied, fearful avoidant, which is also known as disorganized, and dismissing avoidant, which is also known as simply avoidant. So the spectrum ranges from the levels of avoidance and anxiety to determine which of these four we have more of a tendency to lean into. Now remember, if there's 19 different subcategories, that means that we're not just one of these, but we are a blend of each of these. And so often we can get caught up with who am I and identifying as one of these. And yet that can end up causing separation and shame and blame when we are in feeling misunderstood or under misunderstanding that of our partner. So in basic terms, when we consider more secure styles of strategies in order to get our needs met, we have low avoidance and low anxiety. Typically somebody who has more of these secure um, strategies have, have been conditioned that if they ask for their needs to be met, their needs will be met. In this style, there's pretty much an open display of distress or need for comfort. They're not really afraid that it's going to be rejected because that's not in their programmed experience to be rejected. So it's easier for them to reach out, ask for soothing, and typically they'll get back an effective soothing strategy or at least be met with positive greeting um, by the other person. There tends to be a sensitivity and um, towards emotional availability, uh, tend to be really good caregivers and have a really good balance of perspective on their own internal worlds and that of another person's. They tend to have an easier time with trusting. They have a, tend to have a, an easier time with regulating themselves when they become emotionally distressed. Um, so there's a good balance of being able to self-regulate as well as reach out and allow somebody else to regulate them. Someone who experiences more of a preoccupied strategy or also known as anxious insecure type of strategy will have more of an exaggerated display of distress. Um, they have a very difficult time with regulating themselves. Um, what they'll what we'll notice is there's a very quick to reaction to something that is stressful in the environment and have more of a difficult time with bringing themselves down. So oftentimes we'll see somebody who has more of this tendency to need to have other people around to 
be able to regulate them again, um, where it takes them themselves doing it themselves a lot longer of a time. This is as a result of inconsistent caregiving. Um, sometimes they're met with the strategies that soothe them, that are meaningful for them, and then sometimes they're not. So it's not certain. Their nervous system has been designed that it's not certain that they will be taken care of. So it wants to activate stronger into that fight or flight response in order to ensure that their needs are met. And as adults, we will see this manifest as somebody who um, might engage in in um, activities to, you know, make sure that you see me, make sure that you hear me, um, that, which works, right? Because if we're, if we're yelling and we're throwing our phone across the room, they're definitely seeing us, they're definitely hearing us, but it's in a way to manipulate um, our needs to be met instead of it coming from an intrinsic desire. So it can also really backfire on us. And we'll get into that a little bit more in just a moment. The next one is dismissive avoidant or also known as avoidant insecure. And this is where we inhibit our display of distress. We have a mistrust that somebody will be able to show up and take care of us if we ask for it. So we struggle with letting somebody else soothe us. These are the strategies where we might see and we might see somebody and say, oh, you struggle with intimacy. Yes, they struggle with intimacy because they have conditioned in their minds that intimacy is dangerous or it can be dangerous. It's, or at least not going to be able to meet their needs. So why exert the energy in asking for these needs to be met when we, when it's been so consistent that our needs haven't been met? So we might as well just go straight to the source and take care of it ourselves. That way we're not a burden. That way we don't put any stress on this, this relationship that we already have. And it's easier for us to take care of ourselves anyway. As children or even as growing adults, we may have experienced or this may have been further conditioned every time we expressed our need and somebody denied that we had that need. Maybe they put it down or maybe they were like, no, you don't feel that way, you know, totally invalidated our experience because that doesn't give us this space to be authentic or vulnerable. It's like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta just push this down or I just gotta, you know, brush it under the rug and pretend like it's not there. And imagine how that's impacting our nervous system. It makes it a lot harder for us to be connected and to the activation of our nervous system. We'll see this in people where like their heart rate is, is super increased, but the person is like, yeah, I'm not bothered no, I'm good. I'm feeling good. When their body is having a physiological reaction, but they're not connected to it. It's wild. Now, the last one, fearful avoidant or disorganized pattern is more along the spectrum of high anxiety and high avoidance. So this is the opposite of the secure pattern. And this one ha we see a lot in childhood where the child had experienced some sort of trauma and the outside caregivers or family were not able to meet the child in the need of that trauma. 
Sometimes we can see this one form as a result of the child experiencing sexual trauma at an early age or a parent who struggles with mental health issues like um, schizophrenia or bipolar or um, borderline personality disorder where the child internalizes that their needs, there's a very strong inconsistency of the needs and where when we experience a trauma to make sense of it or um, to regulate our system that has completely become dysregulated as a result of the trauma, we reach outward for that, right? And if that's not met in the way that is meaningful for us or um, meets the point that can help us, then we're left feeling very exposed, very vulnerable, and have a much difficult time with trusting ourselves, trusting the environment, trusting others, trusting our reality. And many times we can see individuals who have more of these strategies um, develop the strategy of what we call disassociation, which means disconnecting from the experience, from our body, um, in order to protect ourselves. This is a classic trauma self-protective mechanism that our brain so incredibly have developed to be able to, to save us, you know, so to help us survive. And yet, if we never grow out of that, if we continue that strategy moving forward into our adulthood, then we wonder why we have a difficult time staying in our body, or we might experience total periods of our life where we're completely blacked out or memories from our childhood that are completely blacked out. And it makes it more difficult for us to be able to be present and connect with other people. When somebody with these types of patterns are become distressed, they have odd or contradictory displays of distress, like their affect or the way that they present themselves doesn't match what they're saying. And they would typically have a really difficult time with being able to self-soothe as well as let somebody else soothe them. So here we might see somebody who is both very afraid of intimacy while also very much wanting it. So there's an ambivalence that's occurring there. I really want to be in love. I really want this relationship to work. But then once they're in it, um, they are very afraid and they want to get out. So there's this constant internal battle within themselves. Each of these different styles are characterized by a set of abilities known as mentalization, which is the ability to perceive and interpret the mental state of oneself or others that underlies our overt behaviors. And this is a social phenomenon. Like as we human beings, we typically and very automatically form beliefs about the mental states of those that we interact with. And our own mental states are strongly influenced by these beliefs. And this is for our protection, right? If we can read the accurately, read the nonverbal cues of somebody else's face and their body language, then we can better make the decisions to, of how to interact so that we can ensure our safety. 
Yet humans can still temporarily lose awareness that other people have minds and can even at times treat another person as a physical object. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. (laughs) These include our ability to determine the difference between our internal experience from that of our external experience, our ability to determine the difference between our personal self, my experience, what's going on in my mind and in my body, and that of another person. The third one is our ability to monitor in our mind and the spontaneity that we you know, engage without a filter. And then the last one is our ability to of uh, cognition versus affect or feeling. Okay, let's break that down. I know that was a lot I just threw at you. Oh God, my inner internal nerd self is like, yay, this is so fun. Oh my God, isn't everybody enjoying the ride? <laughs> so looking at the first level of mentalization, this internal world, our internal world versus our external world. Here, we can have problems that arise around the overemphasis on external conditions and neglect our own internal feelings and experiences. So if we have overemphasis on the external world, then we're never actually tuning into ourselves. Well, how is it that I feel about this situation? Perhaps we adopt just what the crowd is experiencing versus really tuning into what it is that we that's coming up for us. So somebody who has a really good balance of this, who's able to determine external versus the internal, they have this ability to be really creative. Like they have this ability to symbolize or this ability to shift perspectives on their lives and the lives of other people. So somebody who's able to go into their own dreams, their own fantasies, who's able to, to you know, create art um, from this imaginary space inside their minds or be able to really create music out of nothing that's external to them. Now, the second one has to do with ourself versus the other person. So we can kind of see how the first one blends in with this one. Um, This one allows our ability to mentalize or figure out another person's state of mind as well as our own and to be able to determine the difference between those things. Um, I can hold that this is my reality and these are my emotions and this is my experience and I can simultaneously hold that that's your experience having this understanding, this reality at the same time. So the lack of this balance means that we have an overemphasis on either the self or the other person. So this is where we might see somebody who's very self-involved and very has a difficult time with being able to understand the mind of other people. Um, they don't, you will hear them constantly say, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. Even though you are expressing yourself and you're, you're making these points and you're connecting these points, but the, their ability to extend their mind beyond their own to, uh, to get yours is lacking. <laughs> we might also see this in the opposite direction where somebody's overemphasizing on the other person. So we might see them 
take on the feelings and the thoughts and the experiences of other people adopting it as their own. Um, maybe an over, over concern for the other people and they are not connected with themselves or with their internal process and, and what's coming up for them. This can be very beneficial <laughs> in, a, in a sense to see if I know how to regulate you, if I know what you're going through and I know how to take care of you, then your calming down impacts me and I can calm down, which is very advantageous because it ensures that we keep that relationship going. But as a result of it, we can end up dropping ourselves. So if you've seen that in a relationship pattern, take note of that now. Mindfulness of other minds as well as our own is the best indicator for high levels of mentalization and is really associated with the sense of uh, internal freedom to explore our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own desires, our own experiences. This is, and, and we can develop this too. This is a practice that we can come into instead of just adopting this socially constructed idea of how we're supposed to be or feel or act or do and own, I can be different amid the sea of other people and be okay and be safe. The next level has to do with automatic versus control or spontaneity versus monitoring, same thing. Automatic is this mentalizing of fast processing, unreflected processes that call for little consciousness or conscious effort or input. Whereas the controlled mentalization is the slow, effortful, and demanding of full awareness. Ideally, we want to see this in balance with our ability to shift from automatic to controlled pretty smoothly with when we have misunderstandings that arise and then we can, oh, that didn't land, that which just came out of my mouth, did not land. And so I'm going to make a course correction so that I can put things right again. We want to be able to have this freedom that automatic or spontaneity lends us. You know, I want to be authentic. I want to say what's on my mind. I want to crack a joke and be witty. And not filter myself. <laughs> and at the same time, that's not always going to be received. So the controlled part or the monitoring part of this allows us to see how it lands and, and make that correction when necessary. This is like when we crack a joke to our partner and our partner's in a bad mood and we're like, oh, shouldn't have said that. And then we're like, okay, make a correction. And then we make a correction to repair the attempt. And then we say something really kind of, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm being so insensitive. And then it corrects the moment and the person can receive us again, because we notice that it did not sit right. And we made the efforts to meet them where they were at again. If and as I'm describing this, you're probably recognizing the imbalance there. 
So somebody who's overly in the automatic or the spontaneous, that's somebody who doesn't have a filter, like no filter. They say something, things just like come out of their mouth and offends everybody in the room and they don't notice that it offends anybody or they just can't make the reaction to correct it. On the flip side, somebody who's so in the controlled aspect or so much in the monitoring aspect is somebody who gets stuck in their heads. Somebody who might experience social anxiety and is constantly in their head like, okay, if I say that, that's not going to be perceived right or that isn't that isn't socially acceptable or I have to act cool or that's not cool. And then they never talk because they're so far in the monitoring that the filter doesn't allow anything to pass through. You know what really helps us to find more of a balance between that particular mentalization? Mindfulness. Actually, mindfulness for all of this, I highly recommend you mindfulness. (laughs) Pick it up because all of these Uh, forms help us to connect with ourselves, connect with our internal experience, the sensations that arise in our body and connects us to the present moment so that we can more accurately perceive what is going on versus projecting the stories from our mind. Now, the last form of all of this the last type of mentalization is cognitive versus affective, which is affect is the emotional experience. So when these are balanced, this is when both dimensions are engaged. You know, this again, cognitive is the intellectual, affective is the feeling, as opposed to either being excessively certain about one's own one-sided answers or ideas or overwhelmingly flooded by emotion. So this explains why we may be able to intellectually empathize with somebody's experience by the information that they give us and regurgitating that because we're really good with being present and listening to what they're telling us, but we have more of a challenge in being able to attune to their present emotional experience, which means to be able to feel with them and pick up the signs and the signals that they're giving about their emotional experience to meet them there. So let's pause on that one for just a second and unpack that. We think that empathy just comes in one single package, but in actuality, it's multiple. (laughs) So we can describe in, in this model, I'm going to describe empathy as two different types, you know, the cognitive and the affective. So cognitive empathy is the ability to understand how a person feels and what they may be thinking or the, and highlight that word understand. Understand is a cognitive experience. That's a mental experience. Here is where they make sense of what we are telling them. So for some people, particularly somebody with more avoidant tendencies, have more 
of this end of the spectrum of this intellectual empathy. They can reflect back to us what we've given them in cues or in words. And it seems like they're getting us. It seems like they're understanding us because they're giving, giving us those words back. Oh, you get it. Yet, maybe, maybe you've been aware of this, but the felt experience, like if you really feel into experience, it may not fully soothe you. It's like, oh, well, like he, he heard it, but for some reason, our nervous system isn't fully calm. It's almost like it's holding onto this, this little thread of like, "Mm, I'm not fully being sane, but I can't quite understand why. Look at that. Emotional empathy, which is also known as this affective empathy, is the ability to share with the feelings of another person. This is the type of empathy that helps you to build emotional connections with others and is a major contributor to successful co-regulation, meaning your ability to calm your partner after they've been activated. Here's a personal example. I lost my shit in front of one of my friends, one of my very dear friends. And I was having a difficult time with regulating myself. Now, um, there were many factors that were at play that were contributing to my vulnerability of emotional dysregulation, meaning that the threshold of what I could tolerate was a lot lower given all of these factors that were at play. Now, in losing my shit in front of this friend, and just in tears, like, oh my God, I feel so far feeling <laughs> so much compassion for myself. Um, this other friend was taken aback. And he also had a lot of factors on his plate that would have made it more difficult for him to meet me in a place that would have calmed me. He is very good at being present. And yet in this particular moment, his ability to feel with me wasn't meeting me in the place that I was needing. No fault to anyone in this situation. It just wasn't in the point of being able to soothe me. And so I left that conversation still feeling incredibly dysregulated and called this other friend who is always able to meet me in that place to be able to regulate me. So I expressed to her my experience, you know, what was coming up for me. And her response was, she just sighed and she expressed how heavy and complicated and messy and, and just a puddle I must have felt. And like, oh, that was so validating. I instantly felt my whole body just go and feel so seen and so held and so felt with. That is validating to the nth degree because here is someone that is not only verbally validating, but you can trust in their words because they are experiencing it with you. And you feel so truly seen and so truly understood and you don't feel alone. Notice the difference of the texture of those two empathies. The first one, and we need both of them, right? We need to be able to understand somebody and to be able to feel with them, to be able to fully 
help regulate them, but then also to help motivate us towards compassion or action to be able to help that other person if it is appropriate, right? Because there's definitely times that it's inappropriate to to overextend ourselves to help somebody or regulate somebody. So just keep that in mind too. All of this is about balance, right? Now, how do we do this? How do we, if we notice that we're a lot more intellectual around this, how do we move into more of the feeling part? Or if we find that we are too overly feeling, how do we bring in more of this um, cognitive piece of it, the intellectual piece of it? Start with getting curious. Start asking questions about what's coming up for them so that you can better understand. And when you are, as you're gathering some of this information, connect with the part of you that has felt in that way. And and be mindful not to verbalize that. Don't bring up this story because this isn't about you. This is about holding space for them. And sometimes when we, out of good intention, be like, yeah, I can really relate. That happened to me. We we think that we're trying to connect with them. We think that that's a positive thing, but it's actually taking away the uniqueness of their story. Sometimes sharing our stories can be really powerful medicine for them, but I would always suggest ask for an invitation I would love to share with you what happened to me. I, f- I feel like I can um, really relate with you. Would you be open to that? That way the other person has this, we're empowering them to make that decision because for some people, they just want to be heard and seen and felt and accepted in their pain process. And for some people, they are looking for that. And then for some people, they want more of this problem solving aspect to it. And, and so it's always important to ask the other person what is meaningful for them instead of us projecting onto them what is meaningful for us and we perceive would be meaningful for them. Can you kind of see how all of these are tied together with each other? <laughs> I can. So amid all of this information that I'm giving to you today, our goal here is to become experts of our own vulnerabilities and that of our partners, to become experts on also what soothes us and that of our partners. So take a moment and write this out in your your journal. When you perceive threat, how does your system automatically respond to protect you? And that's probably your default strategy. The one that when you surpass the threshold of what you can tolerate, it goes straight to the limbic part of your brain, which is more involved with our survival aspect and pulls from the tools that have worked from when we were younger in order to ensure that our needs are met. Not necessarily the ones that are most beneficial to us. And when we know what these are for us, you know, some of these certain words or statements or situations that are more, more vulnerable for us to become activated, then we can express that to our partners and they can now be aware of and be uh, looking for or be conscious of those things. Okay, Kat is sensitive to the vulnerability of not being wanted. So I want to make sure that she feels included and that she she feels met 
in that moment, or if she gets activated, there more than likely could be something that was perceived as not feeling wanted. And I know that she's soothed by somebody just wrapping their arms around her and kissing her on, on the chicken. Be like, I love you so much. I love you. I love you. I want you forever. And that helps her to shift back into a regulated state instead of no longer in the survival state of fear. So these strategies, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit with the different styles of our of attachment. And one of the, the strategies is hyperaction. I'm sorry, hyperactivation. And this we can see when someone attaches to another person really easily and really quickly. This often results in disappointment for two reasons. First, the attachment hyperactivation causes individuals to form inappropriately or really intense attachments to others. And second, and inhibits the neural systems associated with judging trustworthiness of other people. So they might form relationships that are really unhealthy for them or dangerous for their needs to be met. Um, but because their need for attachment to another person and having somebody else regulate or, or help them out is so strong that they aren't able to see that or judge that. Then when our needs aren't being met by this person and we're disappointed, you know, there's some level of disappointment there that they can't meet the expectations that we're placing on this other person. Then sometimes we can see, see this shifting into becoming uh, dismissive or hostile or critical or throwing our phone across the room just to get or make or manipulate the other person to meet us in these needs. Now on the other end of the spectrum, we see deactivation strategies. And this is more, more characteristic of emotional distancing. So when, need, when, our, when we meet the threshold of what we can tolerate, instead of moving towards the other person, we pull away. So in the face of, st of stress, we emotionally distance ourselves. And as the levels of stress continue to increase past even beyond that threshold, these deactivating strategies tend to fail and can lead us to really strong reaction of feelings of insecurity, heightened activation of negative self-representations, or increased levels of internal distress that we may not be cognizant of or connected to. And that's really advantageous if we are afraid that the other person isn't going to be able to meet us in the way that we need them to. So you can kind of see in this strategy, it's easier for us, quote unquote, to shut down the distress or pretend like or disconnect from it and not acknowledge that it's there than it is to ask for somebody to help us in that situation. This is, goes back to what we were talking about with the avoidant attachment strategies, which are um, characterized by deactivating strategies. Like intimacy is in and of itself a, a fear-provoking experience. Now, recognizing what our default strategies are is just the first step. 
it can take a lot of work, a lot of work to change these automatic default strategies because this is hardwired into our brain to go there. Again, if we think about when we've passed that threshold, we go straight into what is our survival survival response. And at the same time, our brain is so incredible with its ability of plasticity that it can change. We can rewire the, wire the brain, but it's going to take us a long time of consistent work on this. So be patient with yourself, be patient with your partner, and continue to the work to create more secure responses. Now that doesn't mean that our automatic reactions go away or the internal feeling of our body goes away, but we can gain connection, stronger connection with it so that we can engage in other tools of being able to help ourselves regulate. So things that are more optimal for us and more healthy instead of just continuing to default to what had worked before. So watered down version of myself, (laughs) past patterns of my earlier adulthood was very short-lived relationships. Like we would get into them and then only for a split second. And then it was as if my interest in that person would die. And I would start picking out the flaws in them and to the point where I would no longer desire them and want out and leave. There was this I also had more patterns of internally controlling myself and auto-regulating myself. So having a difficult time with letting people see the authentic, vulnerable part of me, you know, these parts of me that I would lose my shit or, you know, fall apart. Never, I would never let other people see those parts because I couldn't trust that somebody would be able to be there and help me in the way that was meaningful for them. Or I was afraid that they would perceive that I was a burden and if I showed that part and so it was much easier to maintain relationship if I just took care of it myself. I also had a really (sighs) hard time with telling the truth. Like I, I would frame things in a way that would be more receptive to the other person. So shifting my words in a way that would elicit a positive response for them. I also did not disclose many things that were going on internally to me. So I kept secrets. I kept secrets. And amid all of this, I was so disconnected from that reality. I was not really connected to the high anxiety that was moving through my body or the the fact that I was holding these secrets. It was like I was aware of it, but not aware of it. So as I grew, I actually became obsessed with attachment theory in college and took courses in it and became really mindful of what my default strategies were. And my dating experience shifted. Of course, this has taken years to restructure what has been automatic for me. And I think a lot of this helps that I'm a therapist and I talk about these these different types of tools every single day. But I learned how to not only calm myself, 
but how to ask for other people to meet me in the place that would also soothe me. You know, letting myself fall apart in somebody else's arms, Um, wearing my heart on my sleeve and expressing, you know, exactly what was coming up for me, even if it wasn't going to be socially desirable to say what was on my mind. I learned how to attune to other people. So reading their nonverbal cues and really connect with what might be going on for them. So increasing my embodied empathy. I learned how to connect with my body. Yoga was a huge shift in being able to do that. Uh, Yoga and mindfulness. So learning how to check in with my body um, through, through body scans and realizing where am I holding, how's my body responding to things uh, and speaking from a place of that internal experience. So now when I have conversations with other people and my body goes, you know, my stomach clenches, I, I, I point that out. I'm like, ah, oh, my stomach just clenched there. Um, let me feel into that. And I take a moment and I check in with with myself and I connect with whatever thoughts first arise there or whatever feeling or emotion comes up there. And I communicate that to the other person. That way they can connect with whatever my internal experience is. And we are, moves us towards being on more on the same page. I also am a lot better at empathizing with other people, um, validating other people, connecting with their experience, inviting their experience into this so that we, that I can fully understand and connect with them, not in a way that I throw out my experience, but understanding that two seemingly opposite realities can coexist at the same exact time. And it doesn't make anyone wrong. In fact, I am all about not making another person feel wronged. Because whatever they experience in their life, it makes sense what, why they would come to this conclusion. It would also make sense why I would come to this conclusion. And we have two different experiences of the same apple in front of us. Now, I am the first to admit that I can be a lot <laughs> in the best possible way. Shocking to someone who might just want to connect. And yet, It's in our truth that we can continue to create the exact life that we want to live by being so connected and authentic in our expression and in what is coming up for us rather than perpetuating that which we don't really want by shifting our words to be more receptive or giving white lies or not speaking up for us, for ourselves, or holding our truth. Because when we present inauthentically, we end up growing resentment towards those who we project make us be that way. And yet, we are the only ones who can hold that. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to blame this on other people. It's exhausting to try to show up in a way that we think is going to be most preferred. And we can have compassion for you. In all of these strategies that we all engage in as humans, given everything you've experienced in this lifetime, given how you grew up, 
given how your primary caregivers interacted with you and made you feel safe or not feel safe or met or seen or heard or loved, it makes sense that you developed the strategies that you did because they worked. In some strange, unhealthy way, but they worked. And now you can gain the insight and the opportunity to make that change. You go, Glen Coco, you make that change. <laughs> now, I did have a question from someone on Instagram on my Sex Love Yoga account asking me about attachment and consensual non monogamy. And I just want to put a little note in here as we come to a conclusion of the show today. One argument that I hear consistently from people who believe that non-monogamy or polyamory or anything that's open or outside of the confines of a two-partnered relationship is not right, not healthy, not advantageous for us. Um, I'll hear a lot of them. I'll hear people say, if you are poly, or if you are non-monogamous, then you are an avoidant attachment style. That you engage in multiple partnerships in order to avoid depth of intimacy, or that you engage in multiple love relationships to prevent you from getting hurt. Which isn't true based on research. Now, I can't speak for everyone, right? Because of course, there's going to be some people that, that might want multiple partnerships or multiple relationships in order to avoid intimacy. Very true for some. However, research shows that individuals in consensual non-monogamy relationships actually report a relatively high level of trust, of honesty, of intimacy, of friendship, of, of relationship satisfaction, and low levels of jealousy within their relationships, which is not characteristic of an avoidant style of attachment, but is actually more related to the secure end of the spectrum. Further, this same research showed that individuals low in avoidance were more likely to be in consensual non-monogamous relationships, not high in avoidance, as some people may project. Because if you think about it, when you're in multiple love romantic relationships, that's a lot of intimacy. <laughs> and if you're struggling with jealousy or lack of trust or lack of closeness, it's going to actually activate the relationship dynamic. And it's not going to soothe. It's going to make it more challenging. And why would we want to continue to be in a relationship that's more of a challenge like that? So typically somebody who is high in avoidance won't stay in this style of relationship for very long. Ultimately, what I want you all to gain from this episode is compassion. Compassion for yourself, compassion for others, compassion for your mom, for your partner, your brother, all your lovers, because we are all operating the best that we can with what we have. 
the foundation of which was designed early on in our lives where we didn't have the agency to make the decisions and gain the tools, but now we do. It really doesn't matter so much about what attachment style we are or were, but learning how we react to protect ourselves. These automatic strategies that we go to when we've passed that threshold of what we can tolerate in order to get our needs met can really help us to determine the most optimal styles of relationships and partners for us. Why do we criticize codependent relationships as being less less healthy if it actually is what is most stable for that other person? Why do we chastise poly relationships, blaming them as a bunch of avoidance looking to dilute their intimacy? Or why do we do any of this fucking blaming? Because we don't understand it. Because we were miseducated. Because when we don't get it, we separate ourselves from, quote unquote, those people. And we say that they are wrong while we hold the truth. And if we all are in the same goal of having healthy relationships, then it's going to be up to us to find what is unique about our needs, is meaningful for us to be able to get them met and meet that of the other partner. So I hope this has been enlightening. Again, you can tell I'm so passionate about this topic. And if you're interested in knowing more, head to eatplaysex.com where you can subscribe to the show and get my guides that will help you to have better sex, better love, better relationships, because it's my goal to help you to eat, play, and sex better. I'll see you next time on Eat, Play, Sex. Thanks for tuning in, lovers. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. You can find out more about our guests and topics from our show by checking out eatplaysex.com. Until next time, don't forget to nourish your sex life.